Hey everybody, this is Troy, one of the pastors at First Church of the Nazarene. Thank you for listening to the podcast. It is a glimpse into the life of our church. We are ordinary people being transformed into passionate followers of Jesus. And we are committed to join God in the remaking of all things. I pray that this sermon is a blessing and helps you join God today. If we can serve you in any way, we would love to. Please get a hold of us at lafayettenaz.org. Have a great day. Standing this morning, I want to invite you to hear the word of the Lord from 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul is writing to Timothy and he says this, From Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, for the sake of the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm grateful to God, whom I worship with a clear conscience as my ancestors did, when I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. I recall your tears. I long to see you so that I might be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first lived in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure lives in you. And for this reason, hear this church, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you, through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. This is God's word for us this morning. In just a minute, I'm going to invite you to be seated. And as you're seated, I'd like for you to take a moment and turn to your neighbor and talk and share with your neighbor what you did with that extra hour of sleep last night. Hey, good morning, everybody. My name is Troy. I'm privileged to serve as one of the pastors here. It's my privilege to welcome you to worship this morning. Thank you so much, Dave. Uh, We're starting a new sermon series today called The Grace of Grit. The Grace of Grit. And over the next four weeks, we're going to be talking about something that I think is an important spiritual discipline. So, the fruit of the Spirit, and you go through all of those long lists of words, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. Another way of translating that is discipline. So what happens is is that when God fills us with his presence, he wants to form us into a certain kind of person, into a certain kind of people. He wants to form us into becoming people who are resilient and steadfast and are gritty. Gritty. Like we don't quit. Because we understand that following Jesus is a lifelong and a lifetime commitment. So for the next four weeks, 
This is what we're going to be talking about. And we're going to be working through the letter of 2 Timothy as we talk about this, because I think it is the grittiest letter. I think it's the, the most resilient of letters in all of the Bible. Actually, I think it's incredibly profound. I can't wait to share it with you. Now, listen. I know y'all, and I know that over the next four weeks, you're not all going to be here because you travel and the holidays are coming around. I get it. So I'm going to encourage you, if you're not here, tune in. And you can do that on iTunes. You can do it on Google Play. You can now do it on Spotify for all of you Spotify listeners. You can just make that thing happen. But track with us because I think the Lord has some stuff to say to us. And some of these messages are going to be a little bit weighty. A little bit vulnerable, even for me. Today is one of those. So I'm going to ask for your grace as you're listening in. Uh, because I, 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 in order to preach this, I'm going to need to reveal some things to you so that you can see how it plays out in my life. But have you ever felt or had a time in your life where you felt as if your, your faith was fading? It was fading. And what we want to happen when we follow Jesus is we want our faith to constantly and consistently be growing and expanding and becoming stronger. But instead of doing that, it's doing the opposite. It's weakening and it's shrinking. And one of the things that I love about our church is that there are people in this room today who have not yet made up their mind about Jesus. Like, you're not sure yet. You, in fact, you're not even sure if, if you want to buy into any of it, but you, you like the people here, and you feel welcomed here and comfortable here, and this place is helping you. And so you're not sure about the spiritual part of it, but the Jesus part, but I, I want you to know you're always welcome. And I'm confident that God will guide you back home when it's time for God to guide you back home. So you've not had this spiritual experience thing that I'm I'm talking about. You wouldn't even yet know how it could fade. But for many of us in the room, there was a day or there was a season or there was a period of time in our life where spiritual faith was birthed within us. It was birthed within us, and it felt like the most important thing in the whole world. It felt like the most important thing in our entire lives. It was emotional, and it was significant, and it was weighty. For a lot of us, it changed our life. It just changed our entire life. And we decided we would build our life on top of that, that that would serve as the foundation for us. And upon that, we would build. And some of us were baptized. Some of us even started to invite our friends into that kind of community, we had this really profound experience. And it was life-changing. But at some point along the way, we woke up and we realized that the thing, that thing that used to be so precious to us isn't precious anymore. It's fading. And whatever it once was, It's not that. It's just not what it used to be. Have you ever had that experience? Have you ever just not been sure about all of this anymore? Have you ever wondered if all of this is for you still? 
and at the risk of losing some pastoral credibility, at the risk of doing a little bit of pastoral harm, I need to tell you I've had that experience. I've had it while I've served as your pastor. And this might come as a shock to you, but I actually am human. And there are some Sundays, I'm not feeling it. I'm not feeling it. Some Sundays where the last place I want to be is in church. And I've felt things like you've felt, where you wake up and you think, really? We're doing this again? All of the things that at one point in time felt really beautiful and really profound and really weighty, they, they just start to start to feel weird. Like these songs that we sing that are emotional and existential and transcendent, all of a sudden on those days they feel like the weirdest, strangest group karaoke experience imaginable. And this book, this Bible that at one point in time felt so inspired, like the words were leaping off of the page and straight into my heart, it feels antiquated. And it feels strange. And these things that like I would give my life away for, these beliefs and these people that I would literally die for, all of those beliefs and that doctrine now, sometimes on those days, it just doesn't make any sense. I've had those experiences. I've had those days. And I know, like you know, the moments when you most need your faith are sometimes the moments when your faith seems to disappear. It seems to go away. It seems to shrink. And because I know you, I know many of you, I know that at some point in your life's journey, you've had a profound faith experience, and it changed the course of your life. But over time, that light started to dwindle and fade. And the merit of all of it was challenged. And sometimes that fading of faith can happen through circumstances. I was talking to someone this week who worked really, 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 really hard, gave their whole life to build something that they believed in, and they believed that God was calling them to build this thing, and they gave their time, and they gave their money, they gave their whole life to it, only to one day just watch it dissolve and implode. And it's only natural if you've had an experience like that in your life or a circumstance like that. It's only natural to say to God, I, I thought you were with me. I thought you called me to this. Where are you? And as a result of that circumstance, their faith, which at one point was this vibrant thing, has just completely faded. For others of us, our faith starts to fade through relationships. So you really did think that God called you to that person and blessed that marriage and you thought they were the one and you were so sure of it and you meant every single word that you said when you stood in front of all of those people. But now here, here's this moment and there are, they are the last person you would ever want to be married to. And you start, it's only natural, you start to think, what does that mean about God? Was it all just a big joke? Was it a ruse? 
Or it happens through other sorts of experiences, like experiences that happen to our bodies or the bodies of the people that we love the most. You get a diagnosis. Someone you love gets sick. It's terminal. And this faith that felt like solid as a rock begins to feel like sand slipping through your fingers. And there's just nothing to hold on to. If you've ever had an experience like that, that's an overwhelming experience. To realize that this thing that you built your whole life on, that you would give your life for, that that thing is gone. It's fading. So how is it that you experience the grace of grit in a time like that in your life? How do you hold on to your faith When you're walking through a season like that, how do you hold on when it seems like everything you thought you believed in, you're not sure you believe in that anymore? How do you do that? And the truth is most of us don't. Most of us don't. At least that's what the research says. Over 50% of people in America no longer participate in the religious tradition in which they were raised. So at one point in time, they had this thing, but they don't anymore. And many of us have some sort of religious experience, and all of a sudden, that doesn't fit this new life, and so we don't return to it again. And there are a lot of reasons why I think this is happening throughout America. You know, we have bad PR, we're seen as hypocritical or judgmental, and we're anti-everything, and nobody actually knows what we're for But I think there's another reason why people's faith fades. And it shows up in this letter in 2 Timothy. And so in 2 Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy. And Paul reminds us that one of the main ways that you hold on to your faith, instead of letting it go and leaving it, he gives this advice and he gives it to this this person he was mentoring named Timothy. And we don't know everything that's going on in Timothy's Timothy's life. We're not told. But we can read between the lines. And when we read between the lines, we get a pretty, pretty good idea. Timothy's at that spot. He's at that point in his life where he he had made a decision and he had built his life on that thing. And he doesn't know if he wants to anymore. His faith is fading. He's losing this deep sense of his own faith. And there was, he at one point in time, he was a younger man who was fired up about this good news. And he was going to all of these places and he put his full trust in Jesus. And he was starting churches and he was a part of this movement. And he wanted to be mentored by this great apostle. But now he's in a season of his life where he just doesn't buy it. He doesn't buy it anymore. He's in a time of his life where all around he's seeing people suffer. Constantly seeing suffering. And it's raising all of these kinds of questions. And Timothy's ready to quit. And in the middle of all of that, Paul writes this letter to Timothy. It's incredibly personal. It's an incredibly personal letter. Maybe the most personal letter in the whole Bible. Full of personal references and these emotionally charged references. It's like this love note from an older father to this younger guy who's going through this really nasty time in his life. And what makes this even more profound is 
is Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, and Paul's in jail. As Paul is writing this letter, he's locked up in a Roman jail in prison. And Paul himself is going through it, but he's not experiencing the same things that Timothy was experiencing it. And so he says, he's saying to Timothy, hey, as somebody who knows this road, here's how you hold on to your faith in the midst of this season of your life. And this is what he says, verses 6 and verses 7. He says, I want to remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you. Hear me. I want to remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you. The image literally is of a campfire. How many of you all, when you, when you start a campfire, it's like you're playing out your own personal man versus wild scene in your mind? And I mean, you are, you are lighting that campfire, and in that moment you are like, nobody can stop me. Look at me. I just made a fire. I can provide heat and warmth for my tribe in the midst of this difficult time. Maybe that's, I mean, maybe that's just me. Maybe that's just me. I'm very proud of my fire-making skill and fire-making ability. A little insight into my life. Every Friday night during the fall of my entire high school life, I gathered with friends, and we, we had a campfire. And I had this weird mixture of friends in high school who were athletes, and then also I had a group of friends who were hippies. And hippies love fires. They love that they love that oil that they put on their body that makes them smell like grass. And they really also love fires. And so every Friday night, we would gather and we'd have fires with the hippie friends and guitars. And it was this wonderful experience. And now we have a fire pit in our backyard. And every time I light that fire, man, I just feel like, oh. But if you've ever lit a fire, you understand how it works you got to keep feeding the fire, or what happens to the fire? The fire burns out. And if you've gone camping, you know that before you go to sleep at night, you make the fire really strong. And then you go to bed, and you wake up in the morning, and it's usually just smoke. And if you want, you want to make some breakfast, you want some eggs on the cast iron skillet, you want to get that thing going, what do you have to do to that fire? Well, if you cheat, like, you get like the starter cube out. But if you're, a, if you're a real fire guy, you find that one coal. You get down on your hands and your knees. You blow on that sucker. What are you doing? You're rekindling it. You're rekindling it. And Paul is saying to Timothy, you rekindle the gift of God. That is within you. And it is a gift. It is a gift. Like at one point in time in your life, you came into full contact with this gift and you could never earn this gift and you certainly could never, you didn't deserve it. You weren't worthy of it, but it happened to you and God gave it to you. And that gift changed your whole life. It's like a love that you thought always existed that you had never experienced. You came into personal contact with that thing. It happened to you, and it was this fire, Paul says, that God started 
within you. And that fire was lit. And it's God who did it. And then Paul says to Timothy, God gave you the gift. You have to rekindle it. Rekindle it. Revive it. And when I first read this line of scripture, I thought, oh, this is like a word of encouragement. Paul is encouraging Timothy. Hey, man, come on. Like, you got to do this. You got you to rekindle this thing. You got to revive it. It's a word of encouragement and invitation. But then, then I read it in its original context and language. And it's not just that. It's a command. You must rekindle it. You have to revive it. And what Paul is saying to Timothy is the same thing that's true of us. The principle is the same. as We have the responsibility to keep it going. To keep it burning. That's our responsibility. God gave the gift. God's work is he gave the gift and started the fire. Our job and our work is we have a responsibility to rekindle it. To feed it. And to keep, it, to keep it burning. Now I grew up in the um, era of church, of, of church life where they still had these like scheduled things called revivals. And some of you in this room would be familiar with that. And it was like a certain time, certain couple of times during the calendar year. Or if you were like super holy during the summer, you took a week out of your schedule and you went to something called a camp meeting. And at these regularly scheduled times would be intentionally set up and designed to rekindle that thing, to revive it. And so we'd sing songs with lyrics like revive us again and fan the flames and light the fire. And like we'd go to these services and our life would catch fire. And then a couple months later, it would be all the way burnt out a couple months, like a couple days for some of us. Like this thing would just be diminishing and fading. But until the next time when those services could happen and we'd we'd get into the same room again and we'd sing the same songs and that thing would get lit and and it would all come back. And that's a really adolescent way of understanding faith. But I think some of us still see this thing that way. So we see our faith as this thing that gets lit during like a certain season or a certain time of our life. And then it just disappears. And then hopefully it will get lit again during a certain time or a certain season like Christmas and Easter. And, and then it just disappears. And we feel like, man, there's just nothing I can do to keep that thing going. But that's not what it seems like to Paul. Paul's saying to Timothy, Paul's the older, wiser, who's been through it and is currently in prison. He's saying to Timothy, hey, God started that in your life and it is absolutely real, but you have a responsibility to keep it lit. You, he says, you have a responsibility to keep it lit. So how? How do you do that? How do you keep your, your faith alive when, let's just be honest, most of the evidence that's offered to us in this life seems to contradict. 
How do you keep your faith alive when emotions rise and emotions fall with like the seasons? How do you keep your faith alive with bodies that are falling apart? And Paul doesn't come right out and say how you do it. Instead, he does something even better. He demonstrates it. He doesn't say, Timothy, this is what you do to keep it alive because he knows actions are stronger than words. So what does he do? He demonstrates it. So he reaches out to Timothy, who's this young guy whose faith is fading. And Paul doesn't take him through a doctrine class and say, here's how you can know all of this is true and break down all of his questions and answer all of his concerns. Instead, here's what he does. He takes Timothy down memory lane. He walks him down memory lane. He says, listen, you mean a lot to me, Timothy. And he reminds them of their relationship. And he says to Timothy, I think about those tears that you cried that one time. And we don't know what Paul is referencing. We don't know why Timothy was crying, but Paul does. And Timothy knows that Paul knows why he was crying. And and Paul is saying, I was there with you on that day, at that moment, when you wept for the beauty of your faith and what God was doing in your life. Timothy, I remember that, and I know you remember it too. He said, hey, Timothy, let me remind you of that moment where I stood with you and you cried because of the good stuff that God was doing. And then he says, hey, I remember when you and I were in that room and you first decided you were going to be a part of this whole thing and you wanted to help build and lead God's church And do you remember this, Timothy? Because I know you remember it, because I remember it. And we all gathered around you, and we put our hands on you. And all of those people that were in the room that day, they prayed those big prayers and bold prayers over your life. And you watched, Timothy, you watched as God made all of those things possible that you never thought could be possible And you saw people start to receive the love of Jesus. And churches were started and planted because of what God did in you in that room. I remember that I was there with you. I remember, Timothy, we all prayed and we laid our hands on you. He says, I remember how sincere your faith was, Timothy. I remember that about you. And I remember that because you got it from your mom, Eunice, who got that from her mom, Lois. He names those names. He's saying the best parts of your faith, Timothy. I'm reminding you, Timothy, of your mother's faith and your grandmother's faith. People that you love and would want to grow up to become like, and you respect it, and you want to imitate. The best thing in their life was the way they loved Jesus. They were so sincere about it, and you got that from them. You respect that about them, and I'm reminded of them when I think of you. What does Paul do? He takes Timothy down memory lane. He even reminds them of Jesus' story later on. He says, I I know you already know this, Timothy, but Jesus is the one who defeated death. How? By dying. 
And so, Timothy, part of this life is suffering. So if Jesus suffered, we shouldn't be shocked if we suffer too. And he also lets them know, hey, by the way, I'm writing you this from prison. And yet, Timothy, will you remember? Will you remember? So how is it then that we rekindle that faith? How do we blow oxygen and fan the flames of our faith? How do we keep our faith alive in the midst of really difficult times and seasons? We have to practice that discipline of remembering. We have to practice that discipline of remembering. And there's this really familiar passage of Scripture in the book of Lamentations that demonstrates the power of remembering our faith and how remembering can rekindle our faith. And if you're not familiar with the book of Lamentations, the entire book is a lament. It's a lament. And people are lamenting how they have been defeated by this invading army and the army burned their houses down and destroyed their temple and their friends and their family. They watched them as they were murdered. And they've been left with nothing. And the God that they once were so sure of and trusted in so much seems really, really absent and silent. And so they write this book. It's a whole long complaint to God. I want to read just a portion of it to you. The words aren't going to be on the screen, but I just want you to hear this from Lamentations chapter 3. This is what someone is saying about what God was doing. God shot into my vitals the arrows of his quiver, and I have become the laughingstock of all of the people, the object of their taunt songs all day long. God has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. God has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes and my soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say, gone is my glory and all that I hoped for from the Lord. And the thought of my affliction and my homelessness is wormwood and gall and my soul continually thinks of it and is bowed down within me. It's pretty rough. If you ever feel like you have some stuff to say to God, but you're not sure you can say it to God, would you do me a favor and do yourself a favor and just read the book of Lamentations? And just tell God what you really think of him. Because it didn't stop any of the biblical writers. They had some nasty experiences with God and some things they didn't quite believe in. But they didn't bottle it up and keep it to themselves. They pointed their finger directly at God. And you know what? God's big enough to handle all of that. So in the middle of this nasty complaint, the writer says this. Hear these words. But this I call to mind. This I remember. And therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. And many of us know that passage. We're familiar with that 
small passage. But what we miss is the stuff I just read before. I mean, those hopeful words are in the middle of a lament where the author is saying stuff like, hey God, it's so bad here that old men are sitting in dust and ashes and they are wishing they were dead. And God, when when they look around their city, all they are seeing are women wandering all day because they have no home. And God, you need to know that children are sitting on the sidewalks starving. And I kid you not, this shows up in the book of Lamentations. Mothers are being brought to the point of eating their own children's dead bodies to stay alive. It's in the middle of all of that despair that that we read read those words. But I call this to mind. This I will force myself to remember. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And what is the author doing in that moment? They're calling it to mind. Because at what it's left his heart. It's gone from his heart. But he's calling it back and remembering it. The love of the Lord never ceases. And because of that, I find hope. This is the power of remembering. This is how we rekindle the faith that we once had in the midst of a difficult season of our life. We call it to mind. We call it to mind. And our memory is a really tricky thing because our memory can remember the beautiful things of the Lord, or it also can remember all of the brokenness of the world that surrounds us. And we can use our memory to do one of those two things. We can use our our memory to go over the laundry list of things that have hurt us and people and places and stuff we've experienced, or we can use it to remember the ways of the Lord. I've learned this recently from Catherine Wolfe. Some of you might know that name. When she was 27, everything in her life was great. Like, literally great storybook. But one day she woke up and she didn't feel right. And a few days later, she had a massive stroke. And she went, she luckily survived it. And the doctor said, hey, um, this is a genetic thing. It's been there all along in your body. It's like a ticking time bomb. And it just went off. And then they said these words to her husband. I'm sorry, but there's really nothing we can do. She's gone. And we need to pull the plug. And if we try surgery, it will probably kill her. So the husband pleaded with the doctors, just try surgery. They said, it's too risky. We're fearful of litigation. Uh, The husband actually happened to be an attorney. And he said, I will sign whatever paper you need that promises I will not litigate if you just try surgery. So the husband promises not to litigate. They try the surgery. They save her life, but in the process, she becomes paralyzed. She loses sight in one eye, deaf in one ear. For the past several years, she's been trying to answer the question, how do you hold on to your faith when you wake up to a nightmare? When everything that you expected is different than what it is? She says this, 
I think it's brilliant. And I quote, I had to learn to become bossy with my soul. I had to learn to become bossy with my soul. Which is just like the writer in Lamentations who says to God, you've done this to me, you've done this to me, you've done this to me. But then the writer gets bossy with his soul and calls it to mind. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Which is exactly what Paul was teaching Timothy how to do. Timothy, you're in this season where it feels like it's all falling apart. But get bossy with your mind by remembering. And as you remember the ways that God has demonstrated his faithfulness to you in the past, you are rekindling the gift of God that was given to you. That's what Paul was teaching Timothy. And that's what I'm learning how to do. So on those Sundays when I don't feel it, and I love your faces, but I don't want to see your faces, I learn how to get bossy with my soul. I go to Copper Moon at 6.02. They claim they're open at 6, but they're not. I get to Copper Moon at 6.02. I've now upgraded to the 20-ounce latte. It used to be the 16-ounce latte, the 20-ounce latte, and I got nothing. I got nothing. And this is what I do. I get bossy. I sit or I kneel right there. And I make the list. And I talk to God. I don't make the list and talk to myself. I make the list. And I talk to God. And I consider that in, in four hours, I'm supposed to be standing in this place inspiring people's faith. And I got little left of my own. And I get in here. I crank some worship music. And it's super awkward. But I do everything that I can think of. Whatever it takes to remember, I get bossy with my soul. Because I believe this is true. I have a responsibility, and my responsibility is to remember. And you have a responsibility, and your responsibility is to remember. And I know some of you might be thinking, all of that seems fake, and I thought we kept it real around here. I don't want to fake it. I don't want to think we're that kind of church, and I hear all of that. But what if there is something more true about you than what you're feeling in the moment? What if the thing that's most true about you is the remembering of what God has done in your life? And what if what you're doing in the moment where you get bossy with your soul isn't inauthentic? What if it's doing everything that it takes to remember what's actually real? What if, it's, what if what is most real is remembering what God has been faithful to you? And that's what Paul is saying to Timothy. He says to him, listen, Timothy, God didn't give you that spirit of cowardice. And what do cowards do? They quit. He didn't give you that. He gave you a spirit of power and of love 
and of self-discipline. So remember God's faithfulness to you. Get bossy with your soul. Just a moment, we're going to get ready to come to the